0: Chapter 5 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The South Pole Part 2 When, on September 13, 1909, Captain Scott published his plans for a British Antarctic expedition in the following year, Roald Amundsen was not thinking about the far south. The Fram, it is true, was being prepared for a third voyage, but the Arctic was again to be her destination. Then, during the September of 1909, came the news that Peary had reached the North Pole. One of the great secrets of the world had been revealed, but another was still undiscovered, and Amundsen's thoughts were promptly turned from the Arctic to the Antarctic. For various reasons, Amundsen did not announce his change of plans, And when the Fram sailed in August 1910, only a very few people knew where she was bound for. Not until the ship left Madeira did Amundsen announce his destination to the men who were accompanying him, and they received the news with joy. In two or three respects, Amundsen's expedition differed considerably from Scott's new expedition. Amundsen, for instance, relied on dogs for his motive power. Scott relied on ponies. Then, again, Amundsen decided to make his winter headquarters off the Bay of Whales, which was a degree farther south than McMurdo Sound, where Scott wintered. Scott was to take the Beardmore Glacier as his route to the South Pole. Amundsen's plan, when he set out for the pole, was to leave Scott's route alone and push straight south from his starting place. Our starting point lay 350 geographical miles, Amundsen wrote, from Scott's winter quarters in McMurdo Sound, so there could be no question of encroaching upon his sphere of action. Lastly, it must be mentioned that the Norwegians were as at home on ski as they were on their feet, while most of Scott's men were at their best only moderate performers upon ski. All went well with the Fram on her voyage to the south. She crossed the Antarctic Circle on January 2, 1911, and twelve days later she was in the Bay of Whales. In landing on the Great Barrier, Amundsen knew that he was taking a considerable amount of risk, for there was no certainty that it was not afloat where he landed on it from the Bay of Whales. In Amundsen's opinion, however, the barrier there rests upon a good solid foundation, probably in the form of small islands, skerries, or shoals. And indeed, the barrier treated him well. The landing was performed with supreme ease, and enough seals were found to relieve any possible anxiety as to the supply of fresh meat. Penguins, those delightful birds which provide both humor and food for visitors to Antarctica, were not plentiful, and those that were seen were chiefly of the Adili species. Framheim, the hut in which the South Pole party were to live during the winter, was soon erected and Amundsen found infinite satisfaction in the number of dogs which were safely landed. So, far from losing dogs on the voyage, he had started with 97 and finished with 116, a most welcome addition. The Fram, leaving eight men to winter on shore, was due to sail in the middle of February upon an oceanographical cruise, but before leaving she received some unexpected visitors. On the 4th of February, Captain Scott's ship, the Terra Nova, with a party which had vainly hoped to land on King Edward VII land, came into the Bay of Wales. The news that Amundsen was safely established reached Scott on the 22nd of February, and he could not fail to be impressed by it. One thing only, he wrote characteristically, fixes itself definitely in my mind the proper as well as the wiser course for us is to proceed exactly as though this had not happened to go forward and do our best for the honor of the country without fear or panic there is no doubt that amundsen's plan is a very serious menace to ours he has a shorter distance to the pole by sixty miles i never thought he could have got so many dogs safely to the ice but above and beyond all he can start his journey early in the season an impossible condition with ponies." Words that, in the light of future events, are more than ordinarily significant. Before the winter set in, Amundsen determined to deposit food and the like on the way to the pole, and on the 10th February he set out on his first journey with three men, three sledges, and eighteen dogs. The first trip upon the barrier was full of exciting possibilities. Amundsen was without knowledge of the ground over which he had to travel, and he did not know whether the dogs would respond to the demands made upon them or if his outfit would stand the severe test to which it was to be put. This was essentially a trial trip, and the travelers were naturally anxious that it should be successful. Eighty degrees south was reached, and in every respect, save one, Amundsen was satisfied with his journey. The only fly in his ointment was that time had been wasted in preparations before the party was ready to start in the mornings. But it was only a small fly, and Amundsen knew that with thought it could easily be removed. The dogs had responded so splendidly to the calls made upon them that perhaps the most important question of all had been satisfactorily answered. More depot-laying expeditions followed, and before the winter closed around the explorers, they had placed three tons of supplies at depots in latitudes 80 degrees, 81 degrees, and 82 degrees south. Amundsen and his men could, therefore, settle down for their period of waiting with justifiable hopes that the great spring march to the pole would end in triumph. The winter was spent in paying attention to the minutest details of equipment, and the inhabitants of framheim were kept gloriously busy and contented but with the coming of spring amundsen began to be impatient to be up and away on his great journey temperatures however remained very low somewhere in the neighborhood of minus sixty degrees fahrenheit and until they ceased to grovel in the depths no start could be made with the beginning of september the temperatures began to improve and Amundsen was determined to start as soon as he possibly could, arguing that he could turn around and come back if he found that he had started too soon. So, on the 8th of September, he did set out, and soon discovered that the dogs could not endure the intense cold. On the 11th, the temperature was minus 67.9 degrees Fahrenheit. On the following day, it was minus 61.6 degrees Fahrenheit, with a breeze dead against the travelers. On reaching the 80-degree South Depot, Amundsen deposited more stores and then returned to Framheim. More than a month passed before the South Pole party was able to make another start, and it is of interest to note that, whereas Amundsen ultimately got off on the 19th of October, Scott was unable to start before the 1st of November. The South Pole party which set out from Framheim consisted of Amundsen, Hansen, Wisting, Hassel, and Bajaland, and they were accompanied by fifty-two dogs drawing four sledges. As an illustration of the dangers that lay between the explorers and the Pole, it is enough to say that on the first day's journey a terrible disaster was only avoided by a few inches. In the thick weather they had steered too far to the east, and almost fell into what Amundsen describes as a yawning black abyss large enough to have swallowed us all and a little more. On the 21st, Bajolin's sledge sank down a crevasse and had to be unloaded before it could be brought again to the surface. Wisting, with alpine rope fastened around him, went down and unloaded the sledge, and when he came up again and was asked if he was not glad to be out of such a position, he replied, It was nice and warm down there. It is true that such events are far from unusual in the lives of polar explorers, but Wisting's answer is worth quoting, because it is typical of the cheerful spirit shown by Amundsen's companions during the whole of the journey. In temperament, they were admirably suited for the task that they had undertaken. With a view to landmarks on the return journey, Amundsen, rightly leaving nothing more to chance than he could help, decided to build snow beacons. The first beacon was built in 80 degrees, 23 minutes south, and altogether 150 beacons were erected six feet in height. Up to 82 degrees south, the course had already been traveled by depot-laying parties, but when, on the 6th of November, they left 82 south behind them, their journey was absolutely into the unknown. At this time, they were marching about 23 miles daily and at this rate, they advanced a degree in three days. On reaching 83 degrees south, the explorers deposited provisions for five men and 12 dogs for four days, and depots were subsequently made at 84 degrees south and 85 degrees south. It was from the latter depot that they decided to make what may, without exaggeration, be called their dash for the pole. From their camp at 85 degrees south, The distance to the pole and back was 683 miles. After consideration, Amundsen determined to take forward provisions and so forth for 60 days on the sledges and depot the rest of the supplies and outfit. A weary ascent to the plateau lay before the explorers, and they started upon it on the 17th of November. Three days later they had reached the plateau, but although they were happy enough in having accomplished a long and dangerous climb, their first camp on the plateau was not one of happy memory. Grim work had to be done. Amundsen arrived on the plateau with 42 dogs, but 24 of them had to be killed when the plateau was reached. It was a sacrifice that had to be made if the success of the expedition was to be considered. But no one can read Amundsen's account of it, "'without recognizing how bitterly he and his companions regretted the necessity. "'This camp, not without reason, was called the butcher shop, "'and as both the men and dogs required rest "'before setting out on the final stages of their march, "'it had been decided to remain there for two days. "'The eighteen remaining dogs were divided into three teams "'with six dogs in each team, and one sledge was left behind.' But owing to the weather, the explorers could not leave this hated butcher's shop until the 25th of November, and when they did set out again, a blizzard was blowing. So tired, however, were they of waiting in such an inhospitable and gruesome spot that all of them were eager to quit it, whatever the condition of the weather might be. Fog subsequently impeded the party, and again and again Amundsen blessed the assistance that they received from ski i am not he wrote giving too much credit to our excellent ski when i say that they not only played a very important part but possibly the most important part of all on our journey to the south pole many a time we traversed stretches of surface so cleft and disturbed that it would have been an impossibility to get over them on foot the seventh december was a great day for the expedition because during it they passed shackleton's farthest south 88 degrees, 23 minutes south. They proceeded for another two miles and then determined to make their last depot. So important to them was this depot that they not only marked it at right angles to their course, but also by snow beacons at every two miles to the south. As the explorers approached the pole, Amundsen, very naturally, was beset by nervousness. Would he be the first? was a question that kept on recurring in his mind there was no cause to worry blessed by fine weather he and his companions reached the south pole on december fourteenth nineteen eleven and the five of them together planted the pole from which the norwegian flag flew thus we plant thee beloved flag at the south pole and give to the plain on which it lies the name of king hakon seventh's plateau on this day scott was still struggling on his great march to the same destination which he reached in the third week of january the calculations that amundsen carried out at the south pole gave its latitude as eighty nine degrees fifty six minutes south amundsen had won the race and with his victory had revealed one of the great secrets of the world his success had been gained by strenuous labor great courage and infinite care and if britons connect scott's name inseparably with the south pole and honor it as that of one of their heroes they do not for a moment grudge amundsen the honor due to him as one of the greatest explorers of all time for amundsen was the first to discover the south pole and no one wishes or is likely to forget it the norwegians reached the pole with seventeen dogs one of which had to be killed there and they traveled back with two sledges a team of eight dogs in each sledge on his return journey amundsen was fortunate enough to meet with favorable winds and weather and the explorers arrived at framheim on january twenty fifth nineteen twelve having traveled one thousand eight hundred sixty miles in ninety nine days it was a glorious achievement a great victory over conditions that are scarcely conceivable to anyone unacquainted with the Antarctic or Arctic regions. To pass from Amundsen's expedition to Scott's last expedition is to turn from one splendid exploit to another. Scott, as everyone knows, was beaten in the actual race for the South Pole. But he and his friends reached their goal, and the tale of their struggle against misfortune after reaching it is one of the finest and most pathetic in the world. When Scott's intentions to lead another Antarctic expedition were known, no less than 8,000 applicants volunteered to go with him, and among this enormous numbers were several men whose names will forever find a place in the history of polar exploration. When the Terra Nova sailed from Littleton, New Zealand, for the Antarctic regions on November 29, 1910, she carried both ponies and dogs. Three motor sledges, of which one was lost in landing, were also taken, and Scott, with his intense dislike for the cruelty inseparably connected with the use of animals for motive power, hoped that these sledges would do much to save the ponies and dogs. Owing to engine trouble, these hopes were not realized, but in connection with them, Sir Clements Markham has written, quote, Captain Scott was quite on the right tack, and with more experience, his idea of polar motors will hereafter be made feasible, a consummation which was very dear to his heart. End quote. The Terra Nova was by no means as fortunate as the Discovery in making her way to the Antarctic. At the beginning of December, she encountered a prolonged and terrific storm and subsequently she had to fight her passage through some three hundred seventy miles of ice not until january third nineteen eleven did she reach the barrier five miles east of cape crozier here scott had hoped to make his winter quarters but owing to the swell no landing could be made and on the following day he decided to land at cape evans fourteen miles north of the Discovery's winter quarters Strenuous work followed, and in a few days everything necessary had been landed from the ship. The house was soon built, and the explorers were ready to start laying depots in preparation for the march to the pole. On his first depot laying journey, Scott was accompanied by eleven men, eight ponies, and twenty six dogs. He was more than a little doubtful about the dogs, but thought his ponies were bound to be a success. They work, he wrote, with such extraordinary steadiness the great drawback is the ease with which they sink into the soft snow they struggle pluckily but it is trying to watch them this depot laying party reached latitude seventy nine degrees twenty nine minutes south and there it left over a ton of stores consequently the name of one ton camp was bestowed upon it on the return journey disasters happened that seriously affected the success of the expedition for six out of the eight ponies were lost. Everything out of joint with the loss of our ponies, but mercifully with all the party alive and well, is Scott's comment on this grave misfortune. Ten ponies still remained. During the winter, Wilson, Bowers, and Cherry Garrard started on June 27, 1911, on their famous journey to Cape Crozier to visit the Emperor Penguin Rookery, and they did not return to Cape Evans until the 1st of August. During these weeks, they had to fight against appallingly low temperatures. When, for instance, they started from Cape Evans, their three sleeping bags weighed 52 pounds, but owing to the ice that had collected upon them, these three bags weighed 118 pounds when the travelers returned. Scott considered that no praise was too high for men who would face such weather during the polar winter. With the beginning of August, preparations for the great march went on apace, but it was not until the 1st of November that a start could be made from Cape Evans. Night marching was decided upon, and the order of marching was at first settled by the speed of the ponies, for some of them were slow, some fairly fast, and some were flyers. The motors, with E.R. Evans, Day, Lashley, and Hooper with them, had already started, and the dogs under the control of Mears and Dimitri were to follow behind the last detachment of men and ponies. Very soon, however, the motor party were in trouble, and this party had to abandon their machines and push on as a man-hauling party. By the 15th of November, Scotch reached one-ton camp, and fears about the ponies began to take shape at camp nineteen the explorers were within one hundred fifty miles of the beardmore glacier but some of the ponies were beginning to fail and at the next camp the first of them the gallant jehu had to be shot from this camp it was arranged that day and hooper should turn back at camp twenty two the middle barrier depot was made in latitude eighty one degrees thirty five minutes and then for some days the march was impeded by extraordinarily foul weather. Scott's desire was to take the ponies as far as the entrance to the Beardmore Glacier, but although on the 29th November at Camp 5 they were only 70 miles from what he calls his pony goal, some of the willing animals were very tired. At Camp 29, six ponies were still left out of the ten which had started, but although the chances of getting through successfully to the glacier were good, the weather still remained as obstructive as possible. On the 5th of December, a terrific fall of snow added to the anxieties of the explorers, who found themselves within 12 miles of the glacier, but hopelessly held up by such a violent and unexpected storm. It was natural enough for Scott to be anxious, for on the 7th of December, the food that he had hoped only to use after the glacier was reached had to be begun on. Two days later, however, by marching under terrible conditions, the entrance to the glacier was gained, and then at Camp 31, which was called Shambles Camp, the last of the ponies were killed. On the 9th of December, Wilson wrote, Nobby, Wilson's special pony, "'Had all my biscuits last night and this morning, "'and by the time we camped I was just ravenously hungry. "'Thank God the horses are now all done with "'and we begin the heavy work ourselves.'" At Camp 32, the lower glacier depot was built, and soon afterwards Mears and Dimitri with the dogs turned back for home. At this time the parties were made up of Sledge One, Scott, Wilson, Oates, and P.O. Evans, Sledge 2, E. Evans, Atkinson, Wright, and Lashley. Sledge 3, Bowers, Cherry Garrard, Keehan, and Cohane. But by the 21st of December, in latitude 85 degrees south, Scott had to send back four of these men, and Atkinson, Wright, Cherry Garrard, and Cohane returned. The Upper Glacier Depot was made, and the returning men took back a letter from Scott, in which he wrote, So here we are practically on the summit and up to date in the provision line. We ought to get through. On New Year's Day 1912, the party were within 170 miles of the pole. Three degree depot was made. Then, in latitude 87 degrees 32 minutes south, Scott was compelled to send back E. R. Evans, Crean, and Lashley when all of the men were so anxious to go on it was hard to have to part with any of them but questions of food made it absolutely necessary that some of the party should return the ages of the five men who marched on to the pole were scott forty-three years old wilson thirty-nine p o evans thirty-seven oates thirty-two and bowers twenty-eight again and again scott expressed his admiration of his four companions wilson never wavering from the start to finish evans a giant worker bowers a marvel he is thoroughly enjoying himself oates goes hard all the time with such men scott felt confident in spite of terrible surfaces of reaching the pole but as he approached it fears that amundsen had already arrived were constantly besetting him and on the sixteenth of january when within a few miles of the long for goal there was no longer any doubt that the norwegian party had won the race sledge and ski tracks and the traces of dogs were all too evident faced by such a grievous blow not one of scott's party could sleep that night but on the day following they marched on some fourteen miles and reached the pole the pole scott wrote yes but under very different circumstances from those expected. It is impossible to conceive a greater blow, and when it is remembered that Scott and his four companions were already fatigued, if not completely exhausted, by their tremendous labors, it is easy to realize how heavily the disappointment hung on their minds. Nevertheless, they had set out to reach the pole, and they had reached it. All honor is due to them, and the fact that Amundsen had preceded them in no way diminished the glory of their achievement. The altitude of the pole, as estimated by Scott, is about 9,500 feet. A cairn was built, and the Union jack-hoisted. And then, on Thursday, 18th January, they turned their backs upon their goal, and began the long march that separated them from Cape Evans. Anxiety about food began at once not until 3 degree depot was reached could it be lessened and very soon anxiety at evans' condition was added to the danger of the scarcity of food on wednesday the 31st of january the weary travellers reached the 3 degree depot but by this time evans had dislodged two fingernails and his general condition was very bad their next objective was the upper glacier depot and on monday night the 5th of february They were within from 25 to 30 miles of it, but so critical had the health of Evans become that Scott was desperately eager to get off the plateau. Things, he wrote, may mend for him, Evans, on the glacier, and his wounds get some respite under warmer conditions. On the evening of the 7th of February, they reached the upper glacier depot, and then, after turning aside to collect geological specimens, which proved to be the most valuable they met with terrible surfaces and weather on the fourteenth of february with thirty miles still to go before the lower glacier depot was reached scott's anxiety about the condition of the party was acute indeed poor emmons had almost reached the limit of human endurance and during the night of seventeenth february he became unconscious and died quietly at twelve thirty a m it was a terrible experience for men, already supremely fatigued both in mind and body, to meet, and it was a sorrowful party which on Sunday afternoon arrived at Shambles Camp. There, horse meat in plenty awaited them, and this gave them the renewal of strength that was sadly needed. For the moment, the prospects of the explorers looked a little more hopeful, but from this point of their march, they began to suffer from a lack of oil when, at length, they succeeded in arriving at the Middle Barrier Depot, and on the 2nd of March they found so little oil that it was scarcely enough, however economically used, to carry them on to the next depot, which was 71 miles distant. Another irretrievable disaster was the fact that Oates' feet were very badly frostbitten. On the 4th of March, Scott wrote, I DON'T KNOW WHAT I SHOULD DO IF WILSON AND BOWERS WEREN'T SO DETERMINEDLY CHEERFUL OVER THINGS. AND IN ALL TRUTH, THE POSITION HAD BECOME DESPERATE. ON THE 7TH, WHEN STILL 16 MILES SHORT OF MOUNT HOOPER DEPOT, Oates, THOUGH WONDERFULLY BRAVE, WAS IN TERRIBLE PAIN. DURING THE NEXT DAY THEY ARRIVED AT MOUNT HOOPER, BUT THE SHORTAGE OF OIL WAS NOT RELIEVED over 70 miles separated the exhausted travelers from one-ton camp, and they struggled onwards with death staring them ever nearer and nearer in the face. With no helping wind and bad surfaces, they could not advance more than six miles a day, and on the night of the 11th, Scott reckoned up the situation in these words, We have seven days' food and should be about 55 miles from one-ton camp tonight. 6 times 7 equals 42, leaving us 13 miles short of our distance, even if things get no worse. In quote. Unhappily, instead of any improvement in the situation, misfortunes became more and more plentiful. It was obvious that Oates was near the end, and on the morning of the 15th or 16th, when the blizzard was blowing, he walked out of the tent "'I am just going outside, and maybe some time,' were the last words he spoke to his companions in distress. "'We knew,' said Scott, who still continued to write his journal, "'that poor Oates was walking to his death. "'It was the act of a brave man and English gentleman.'" Oates sacrificed himself in the hope of helping the others, and no brave man ever performed a braver act. But his sacrifice was of no avail fortune had declared too strong a hand against the explorers for them to be able to resist it by midday on the eighteenth of march scott wilson and bowers had struggled on to within twenty-one miles of one ton depot and during the afternoon of the following day they managed to advance another ten miles and then they made what was destined to be their last camp the men themselves were in a pitiable condition and blizzard following blizzard, they were utterly unable to march a step farther. On the 29th of March, Scott wrote, quote, Since the 21st, we have had a continuous gale from the west-southwest and southwest. We had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece and bear food for two days on the 20th. Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent. It remains a scene of whirling drift. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. End quote. And then follows those pathetic words quote, Last entry, for God's sake, look after our people. End quote it was not until the thirtieth of october that atkinson on whom the leadership of the expedition had fallen was able to take out a search party and nearly a fortnight later the bodies of these three friends and explorers were found no more fitting words could be found with which to conclude this chapter of great deeds than those which were left in the metal cylinder on the grave of these heroes november twelfth nineteen twelve latitude 79 degrees 50 minutes south this cross and cairn are erected over the bodies of captain scott cvo rn dr ea wilson mb bc and lieutenant h r bowers royal indian marine a slight token to perpetuate their successful and gallant attempt to reach the pole this they did on january seventeenth nineteen twelve after the Norwegian expedition had already done so. Inclement weather with lack of fuel was the cause of their death. And to commemorate their two gallant comrades, Captain L. G. Oates of the Inneskilling Dragoons, who walked to his death in a blizzard to save his comrades, about eighteen miles south of this position, also Seaman Edgar Evans, who died at the foot of the Beardmore Glacier. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. End, quote. End of chapter 5, part 2.